We're in this really funky, weird chapter, chapter 20 of the book of Genesis. And I think there's a part of us that has to ask, haven't we been here before? But before we even read it, I want to pray the prayer that I've been praying. Not like here it is written out word for word, but the gist of it that I've been praying, that I almost always pray in some manner or another as I read through text like this, or any text in Scripture. Lord God, I just want to pray right now, Father, that that the encouragement you want me to get out of this text would be the encouragement that I see. The challenges you want me to get out of this text would be the challenges that I get to see. Lord, those places where um, I'm blind to a weakness, if it's in this text, reveal it to me. Lord, I want to love you more. I want to follow you more fervently and more passionately. I want to love you with all of my heart and my mind and my soul, my spirit, my strength. God, in that, I just pray that whatever you want to do to equip me more, to edify me more, to challenge me more, to carve off of me more, to make me more in your image, to, to, to reveal your will, your love, your personality to me, your character, your power. Do it, would you please? And God, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would come upon me the way you want him to, that I would have your power to do what I cannot humanly do. You would immerse me that I would be able to see eternity And I would become transparent and invisible so you would be seen by these precious men and women you bled and died for. So please have your way now. Profoundly minister. May there be, uh, every one of us, may we personally encounter you now. May your word, may there be just that which you've intended for each of us individually. May we be ready to hear it. And then corporately as a family. In Jesus' name, bring salvation, bring hope, bring encouragement, bring challenge, bring exhortation, bring rebuke, bring whatever we need to be brought. We're ready now, at least as much as we think we can be. In Jesus' name, amen. I would say this morning as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be the authority. Not a man, not an institution, not some guy smoking a pipe on a Chesterfield, the word of God. All right, chapter 20, read read along with me if you would, please, starting in verse 1. Abraham journeyed to the south and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and stayed in Gerar. Now Abraham said to Sarah, his wife, she's my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Indeed, you're a dead man. Because of the woman from which you've taken, for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come nearer, and he said, Ah, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Did he not say to me, She's my sister? And she even herself said, He's my brother. In the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands, I've done this. God said to him in a dream, appears to be two dreams in the course of the night. Yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart. For I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I didn't let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet. And he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you will surely die, you and all that's yours. And Abimelech rose in the morning, early in the morning, and he called all of his servants and told all the things in their hearing, and the men were very much afraid. And Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? Why have I offended you that you have brought on me, or how have I offended you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom so great a sin? You have done deeds that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you have in view? In other words, what were you thinking that you've done this thing? And Abraham said, because I thought surely the fear of God is not in this place and they'll kill me on account of my wife. But indeed, she really is my sister. She's the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. So she's my half-sister. She became my wife. And it came to pass 
When God caused me to wander from my father's house, that I said to her, this is not, this is your kindness that you shall show to me in every place. Honey, if you really love me, you do this. Wherever we go, say of me, he's my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep, oxen, male and female servants, and he gave them to Abraham, and he restored Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, See, my land is before you. Dwell in what pleases you. And then to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Indeed, this vindicates. The word is kasut. It means to cover. It vindicates or covers you before all who are with you and before everybody that she was therefore rebuked. And Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female servants, and they bore children. For the Lord had closed up the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Now, you kind of read this, and you kind of go, what in the world? This is like a Brazilian film. There's strange things all over this chapter. Well, sure. But let's start putting things into context and see what God has for each of us. First of all, go back to the last chapter, verse 27, chapter 19, verse 27. It says, Abraham rose up early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. Then he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward the land of the plain, and he saw and behold the smoke of the land which went up like the smoke of a furnace. And why do I even give you that ahead of time? Because there's some reason that Abraham moves. Abraham has taken the long route from the area of Ur, which is the area of the Gulf War crisis, that Persian Gulf. And it went up. He went up north towards and in through Syria and then down through Canaan. As he goes to Canaan, that's a land where God says, hey, this is all yours. No matter where you set the foot, I'm going to give it to you. Now, I don't know about you, but that's enough for me to just start walking. And uh, I would be the most fit person I've ever been in my life because the moment God says, I'll give you land, you just walk on it. And there's something about the idea of God saying, look, at this is the part that's your responsibility is to walk. If you can walk, I'll do the rest. Just walk. Walk in faith with me. Just walk. And I think walk, man, of course, that's just my personality. So if walk is good, jog is better, and run is awesome, I mean, that's kind of my attitude. And and of course, I'd start running to the coast. You know, I'd start running, I don't know, down to the Thames. I'd just start, you know, what's prime real estate? I'm just going to start walking it, right? And and in all of that, as he does, though, then there's a famine. And as there was a famine, this is all, by the way, in just chapter 12. This is where we're introduced into him at the end of chapter 11 in Genesis. In chapter 12, we meet this guy, in essence, this Abraham. He's left. All of this has happened in the first 17 verses. And there's a famine in the land where he is. Now, there's something about Now, I want you to think about that, almost the humor or the weirdness in that. God's like, I'm going to give you. All this will be yours. And you're like, wow, awesome. And then it all dries up and turns brown on you. And you kind of thought, wow, did you know that when you gave it to me? No wonder why you gave it to me. Look at how awful this is. And there is something to note about that because it won't be like that for long. But it's long enough for him to go someplace he shouldn't go, and that's to Egypt. Now, for what it's worth, you probably get the same thing. If you read the scripture and you read in, in Matthew 5 and it says that the meek will inherit the earth, and you're going to tell that to some person who doesn't have any faith in the living God, and they're going to say, you can have it. Who wants this earth anyways? Because they see it turning brown. And they kind of see that's kind of like God saying, and I give you the Titanic. And you think, thanks a lot. As long as I can scuba dive, I guess. And, you know, people, and then we're, so we're recycling and we're buffing up. And it's just kind of like the, pardon me for saying so, to the 60-year-old person that's really still trying to look 20. They just keep getting something worked on every day. And that's what we're doing with the world, still trying to make it look like it's 20. And, um... And in all of that, we all recognize that things going down. Now, I'm not here as, I'm actually the most ridiculous optimist you may find. Yet in that, God made that clear that this thing's got an expiration date and we're really at the edge of its shelf life. But the, the beautiful part about it is he promises a new heaven and a new earth. Not this one. When he says the, the meek will inherit the earth, if this is all we get, bummer. We might as well cash it in now. But if we've got something better, and that's what Abraham's going to see, is that at the moment that God gives him this promise, I mean, there are times that God lays out this promise and it's going to be the story of his life. A guy who's basically typified by two symbols, the altar and the tent. And what we see is the reason and constantly living in tents just because it just isn't his land yet. It's not his home yet. In fact, the only property he's going to buy is the place to bury his wife, where he himself will be buried. Keep him up for that. Yet, in all of that, he's going to go down to Egypt, and you kind of get the idea from this point on, man, when you go south, you go south. It's just not good. And so he goes there, and then he plays that role. Chapter 12, and he looks at his wife and goes, Honey, you fine. You a good-looking thing. And because you're a good-looking thing... 
they're going to want you. And if I'm your husband, they're going to kill me to have you. So now understand, there's something you might miss. If you know anything about politics, and I mean in the older politics, because I personally hate politics, um, it just seems like everyone can argue and even agree. The, um, in that sense, the one thing about sort of warlordish kingdom area of, you know, politics is marriage is actually a big tool for peace. I want you to realize that. Like, for instance, I mean, if I came into an area and I had hypothetically Abraham's group of people, so we've got a couple thousand people that are with Abraham and more likely than not. And, and I mean, so we've got Abraham's a walking city. And he's got more sheep and livestock of all sorts coming with him. So he's a walking farm. And if you think about it, he's basically, you know, half of the places that are, you know, any place he's, once you start heading down south from London, he's basically one of those areas that are just moving around. So the guy's someone to be dealt with. I mean, he had 318 trained servants and he took down four kings that whooped the entire Sodom plain. That tells you something. So the guy you're going to want to make peace with. Now, here's something that's a general rule. If you marry somebody from their family, they tend not to want to kill you anymore. Because, after all, you can't kill our kingdom. They'd kill your family member, too. And you'll find that with Ahab, perhaps you're familiar, remember, Ahav, who marries that real sweetie Jezebel. She, by the way, is the princess of a Sinai king. And think about, why does he do that? Why did Solomon marry a lot of these women? Now, granted, you could think, well, he married because he looked and went, wow, you're different looking, being part of my harem, you know? I mean, I, I mean, after 900, I know the last 100, you just probably just, any of you just come on in. But, you know, but, but when you get to it, you think about it, it's like the guy married the sort of this gal, and there's an Ethiopian princess in that, and this particular, and he married, and he says, okay, Sidonia, let's get one of those in here, and let's get an Assyrian queen in here. Because the more you marry those people, they're not going to kill you, boy. You, come on, we're family now. And, and the reason I say that is, when Abraham, the moment he looks at and says, Honey, you fine, you're going to have to be my sister, he's got to know that she, she's going to get married off. I mean, that's a weird thought. I mean, because, I mean, think about it. If he's walking around with all these people, why didn't anyone take Hagar? She's younger. She's, I mean, chances are she was probably a pretty fine-looking thing. Why, take, why not take her? And, and you could say, well, because you know, we all know Sarah was just beautiful. Okay, but what are the odds that there wouldn't be one more beautiful person in a group of a couple thousand people or so? But man, if you're my sister, you are the first person we take. Because if you're my sister, they're gonna, and, and, and then my sister gets married off to someone, well then certainly you're not going to attack me and I'm not going to attack you. And the idea of it is I would want your sister, in the in sense of this, because I would, I'm, a fear, I'm fearing you. I'm fearing the might and the power that you have. And if I have your sister, you're not going to kill us. So understand where he goes. I mean, understand, sure, Rebecca's fine. So they take her and put her in the harem. But why does the king have a harem? Do you really think it's just because it's sort of like cable? He wants a bunch of options? Well, part of it, again, is the political play. I mean, if he, can, he could kind of walk into a harem of girls. And what he could say in all of that is, you're my safety for this country. And you're my safety for that country. I mean, this is padding himself out of it. Now, understand, at this point, she's 89 years old, but she's still, something must be going on with this girl because she is still good looking. Because in all of this, God still says, I withheld your hand. Now, to withhold the hand, by the way, the, the, especially in the verb tense here, it means, by the way, that he was actually trying to move his hand towards it and God stopped it. It's one thing that said, I would have stopped your hand had you moved in that direction, but God said, I stopped it. So that tells me that this king kind of looks at her and goes, woo-hoo-hoo, and God says, no-ho-ho. I, I love that. And but, so as I kind of look at that, I think, wow, this is really bizarre. But at the, and so in all of that, from that time, he goes back up. Now, when he comes back up from Egypt, we're back in chapter 12 at this point. When he comes back up, he comes back up, and the king goes, and he goes, you lied to me. This is actually your wife. And it's interesting. The first time we're introduced to Egypt, and as we're introduced to Egypt, they're struck with plagues because of a Jewish guy that went down. Now, I'm in no, I'm in no way sort of bring, uh, other than God's like, okay, this is a foretaste of what's going to happen in the next book. We'll get there when we get there. But in that, this, 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 you know, this king looks, and he goes, all right, well, I'll tell you what. I'm going to give you lots of stuff. Now, understand why someone does that. What they're saying, it'd be the same thing as saying, if you were actually at a, at a restaurant, and you had a terrible service, and then the food was even worse, and the last thing you wanted was anything that had to do with that restaurant again, and you wanted to insult them, 
You would say, look, at first of all, I'm going to pay for my bill so you can't make any blame on it, and I'm not going to eat any of it. You could give it to the dogs as far as I'm concerned. Now, I've never done this. I want you to know that. I've actually helped run restaurants, so I'm on the other side of that. Perfectly none like that. But, you know, in the end of it all, you're kind of going, look, at I've paid for it. It's sort of like I'm taking it back and still paying for it because I don't want anything to do with this. I don't even want the memory that I ever bought this in my hands. Well, that's what the Pharaoh does. He shames Abraham and says, look, at I'm just going to give you all this stuff. In other words, I've paid for your sister as if she were a wife, but I'm going to give her back to you anyways. But with all this stuff in that payment was Egyptian maidservants. And one of those, of course, we know to be Hagar. That gal that's that little thing that kind of gets him in so much trouble later at the insistence of his wife. Now, from that time, he and his, and his nephew separate. And as they separate, Lot chooses this plain. Now, understand, the plain's a big area. That is the area basically between the hills of Engedi and the Jordanian hills on the other side. And there's this big area. And it really is two tectonic plates. It really is just this rift area. It's the area that's the lowest place on earth. The Dead Sea is right there. And in that area, there's a bunch of little cities. But Lot, again, was a rancher just like his uncle. And he's got all this livestock, but he winds up in the city anyways at the sacrifice of all of his animals. Now he can take it easy. And that's what we looked at last week, if you remember. And as Lot did that, at the, at the removal of who he was, at the removal of what God had given him in blessing, he goes and trades it all in to live in the city at that point. And that city, when you adopt your society, you adopt its politics and you adopt its problems and they get taken captive and Abraham has to go and rescue them. And it will be the last time, according to Scripture, that Abraham sees Lot. Is that moment where, I mean, imagine looking going, all right, Lot, have you learned from this? You're done now, right? I mean, you, you moved in a city that was evil. It was unable to defend itself. It was taken captive. Get out. But Lot doesn't get out. He goes right back into the place where he came. And that's the last that Abraham will ever see of him. And here he is up on those hills looking down at this plain where somewhere in that plain his nephew lives and all of the people that are with him. And with that then, one day, these three characters show up at Abraham's house, his tent. And they say, should I tell you what's going on? I'll tell you what's going on. We're going to go down there and check it out. And if it's as evil as it said it was going to be, as what the reports are, we're going to take this thing down. The entire plane, not just one city, the entire plane, we're going to take it out. That whole area down there. And Abraham gets in this barter, this bargaining session, and he says, all right. But you wouldn't destroy everything if there were righteous people there, right? I mean, you're going to kill the righteous too? And I have to imagine he's bargaining for his nephew. I mean, you wouldn't really, I mean, come on, my nephew's down there. You're not going to kill everybody, right? I mean, if there's, a right, if there's one righteous, I mean, if there's at least ten righteous, right? If there's at least ten righteous, you're not going to kill them, right? No, no, no. Matter of fact, what we'll find, according to Jeremiah 5.1, and as we see in last week's text, all it takes is one righteous person for God not to take anything down. Praise the Lord for that. Well, in all of that, we meet the situation on the other side of the camp. We look at Lot's situation. Now that we see Abraham, and that's Abraham's just kind of looking. And that, I mean, imagine how weird of a conversation that is. The Lord's like, all right, we're done, right? Okay, well, I'm going to go now. I'm going to go check it out. And, and imagine, do you sleep that night? And there you are thinking, well, if there aren't ten righteous. I mean, what are the odds that there couldn't be ten righteous in that entire plain? All of those cities, the five cities we know that fought, you know, against the four kings. I mean, all of that area. Well, what are the odds that there wouldn't be ten righteous guys in there? And then all of a sudden, Abraham looks, and what he sees is just smoke everywhere. He goes, hmm, I guess there weren't ten righteous after all. And what would that be like? I mean, would you, I mean, you think of that sort of that, if you're in a movie, that's the moment where you go with the reminiscent montage, you know, where you think of all those moments of you and Lot, those warning moments, you know what, to be honest, if you ever like that and you ever know the death of a friend who's OD'd or a guy that you've tried to pull out of a gang that got stabbed to death, and I'm speaking from personal experience, those montages, you just you can't force it. It just happens. And you just think, oh, man, if I could have just warned him one more time, if I could have just said, stop, do you realize? If I just said it with more passion, with more convincement, you know, convincement, you could, that's the problem maybe. You know, I mean, if I, could, if I could have just said one more time at the right moment, stop, you're insane. What are you doing? But they nod. They, they, yeah, yeah, sure. No, it's no problem. It's no problem. And you're like, yeah, it is a problem. 
No, no, I'll change. No, I mean now, now. I'll get, I'll get around to it. And one thing we learned about last week is if the devil can't convince you there's no hell, and if he can't convince you there's no harm in what you're doing, he can convince you there's no hurry. Come on, Lot, let's go. Come on, Lot, let's go. It's morning now, Lot, let's go. And he has to grab him out, drag him out of the city. Get, get out of here. Would God have to do that with you? Is there any situation in your life where God would say, you know what? You know I've been saying for a long time, get out. And you're still going, I'll get around to it. And God says, the round to it's now. Let's go. And at that point, Abraham doesn't know that Lot's made it. Or the weird situation now the chapter ends. He doesn't know about that. All he's looking at this point, he's looking at a smoldering, smoking valley. The whole thing looks like the valley, looks like a place of a furnace, which means it's just continual smoke rising. I mean, this is a valley of smoke rising up. And what do you do? Like, I don't ever want to look at this valley again. Wouldn't you? So he leaves. I'm not, I don't ever want to look and remember how many times I warned Lot. How many times I tried to instill in him good ideas. How many times I tried to put some hope in this. I don't ever want to think about the fact that I stared him straight in the face and he looked at me and said, no, man, seriously, I won't do that again. I had a friend named Mike in high school. Uh, high school, secondary school in America, um, for some. For the rest, it's, I guess it's a place you have to be till 16. Anyway, so, uh, and this guy was, he was just big on acid, for those of you who might be familiar with that. It's a hallucinogenic. And uh, Mike was this little guy. He had a lot of hair. And he was known for doing anything. I mean, he was the kind of guy that if he said, Mike, try to run through that brick wall and see how many times you have to hit it before it goes through there. He'd spend the rest of his day, too. It was bloody. He was just that kind of weird of a guy. And probably the drugs really helped that. And I remember looking at Mike and saying, Mike, man, you're getting a little bit crazy with this. And he's like, you know, this is so amazing. This is a drug you can't overdose on, man. You could just keep taking it. I'm like, bro, it stores in your fat cells. You realize you drink orange juice. You start burning a fat cell and you get it back. He's like, awesome. I'm like, no, it's not awesome. What happens if you're driving? I remember once we were walking through this area. There's sort of the shortcut you take through this field, one of the rare places in Chicago where there was one. And as we're cutting through this area, and of course, this is no trespassing, which normally means for a kid our age at that time, not knowing Jesus, that means come on through. And we're walking through this, and there's this just this big riverish creek type thing. And it had been raining really hard before that. And I remember Mike kind of looks at it, and he jumps in. Well, if you know anything about swollen rivers, they have a tendency to have a terrible undertow, which means that the force pulls you down in the water. And I remember Mike going down. And I was a lifeguard. And I know it's like I could jump in, but I also knew that there was an undertow. So I went and grabbed a, a branch as quick as I could, and I stuck the branch out to grab. And I'm like, Mike, grab the, grab the branch, grab the branch. And he grabbed the branch, and he started pulling himself up. And just at that moment, now here he was, from all I can tell, he pretty much hadn't done any drugs that day. And then he looked me straight in the face, and he just started to flash back. See, that energy that he was exerting was burning fat cells. And so he looked at me, and he went, a snake. And he thought the branch that was there to save his life was actually something dangerous. It was something that was going to hurt him. And he let go. And it was the last time I ever saw Mike again. But the strangest thing was is that I saw him on his way down. I saw that fear in his eyes as he looked at that thing. I'm like, Mike, what are you doing? What are you doing? And it's like, I, I can to this day in a, see a swollen river and I can see Mike's face. But there's so many times where I can tell you of other situations, and I bet we all have them. Where you're looking at the girl and saying, you're getting really close to something you really shouldn't. Or the person, and you're like, you know what? That's really not a relationship you want to be in. Or, and, you, and, you, and you look at them, and, they're, and they, and they convey, because we all know how good of a liar we are to ourselves. Matter of fact, the scriptures tell us that our heart is more deceitful than Satan. Did you know that? Jeremiah makes clear our heart is more deceitful than anything. Now, if that be the case, and that's the reason, is, is our heart knows how to lie to us better than anyone. And so you're like, well, you know what? He says he's a Christian. I'm like, and that's good enough for you, is it? Well, you know, it's not really that bad of a situation. I'm like, well, exactly. How bad does it have to be so then it is that bad? Have you defined it? Or is it on a sliding scale so you can do what you want? Well, and the reason I say all of that is, is that Abraham now is looking at a place where he's just going to see Lot's face. He's like, I'm gone. Man. Let's get out of here. So here he is, this big moving empire, and he's walking, and he goes south, 50 miles south, 
He's in the area of Hebron at this moment, remember? And he leaves there, and he goes basically at this point, he's going to go about 12 miles south of Gaza near the coast. So this is a long trip. And this isn't like a couple people that are kind of heading on a few-mile hike. This is a guy that is now moving at this point about 70, 80 kilometers with with an army, with thousands of people and their animals and children. I mean, what would it be like for Abraham to look at you now? I mean, what would it be like if I was like, all right, everybody, we're going. We're going where? I don't know. Away from here. And that's all you know. Well, at that point then, now he's got to deal with this fact that this is what he's struggling with, and, and he defaults back to his sin. And here's the thing. We kind of look and go, there he is doing it again. The thing is, do you guys? it was 24 years ago he did this. And I just can't help but think, wow, man, I'm sure glad God doesn't have a record of what I did 24 years ago. And I want you to think about that. That's 1987. Where were you in 1987? Now, some of you were like, I was pretty safe because I was barely anything. But some of you out there, I want you to consider this. Where was that? 1987. Some of, some of us were actually in university. Some of us were beyond university. Some of us were trying to figure out what in the world this was all about. Well, Imagine if something you did in 1987 was recorded in Scripture. And then you went, oh, there I am doing it again. Now, why would God even record this? Well, of course, I don't think any of us go, well, why would Abraham do this again? Because it's like any one of us. But the problem is at a moment like this, when you're just kind of dealing with the problems and the grief of the situation, we have defaults, and unfortunately, our defaults are sin. Have you noticed that? We're really good at that. I mean, in a moment when some kind of bad situation happens, there's the, the enemy wants to creep in and say, you know, you might as well get drunk right now. I mean, no one's going to blame you. You, know, you might as well go find someone else. I mean, come on, she made your day a little rough. Go out and find someone else. I mean, who's going to blame you for that? Go ahead and just take that thing. I mean, come on, you've had a hard life. You've got it in you. And the enemy knows how to seize a moment like this and go, you know what, come on, no one's looking. Go on to the Internet and you know where you can go. No one's going to know it. Just go ahead. You deserve a break today. Abraham's like, man, I'm I'm gone. I'm out of here. And so he heads south. And the last time he heads south was Egypt 24 years ago. And now here he is again. And he looks and he says, all right, honey, you know what to do. We've got this deal. Bail me out. And at this point, he's just got to know the moment he says she's my sis, she's going to be gone. Uh, this is 24 years of promising her a baby that he said God has told him they're going to have. 24 years of that. By the next chapter, she's going to have that baby. But this is still in the middle of this. I mean, it's more than likely she's not pregnant at this moment yet because it says that God visited her in the next chapter, took care of business. By the end of this chapter, you kind of look and realize, okay, he opens and closes the womb. That's pretty evident by the entire... I mean, there's nobody in Abimelech's kingdom that's going to question that. So he shows up in this area and he's basically in Palestinian territory. And he's in Palestinian territory. He's got to look at this guy, and he's going to look at this man, Abimelech. He's the king. He's going to go, now, why would a king even be aware of this guy? Well, let's be honest. There's thousands of people and their animals showing up in your area. It's pretty popular at this moment. It's more than likely the mayor and the chief of police are going to find out. So he shows up, and he's like, well, who are you? And he's like, oh, I'm just a traveler. I'm a wanderer. And that's what we'll see in the term that he uses here. Well, who's that? Well, that's my sister. Right, honey? Uh, uh, sis? That's right. I wonder why I would be contentious too. But then God, did you notice, holds this man accountable? Now, we already know in the text why Abraham did this, right? And there is definitely a lesson to be learned in this. See, Abraham actually responds in all of this because he says, because when he asks, why in the, what were you thinking? Remember when he asks that, what were you thinking that you would do something this stupid? And he says, and by the way, I'm just putting things into clarity. Abraham says, and look at verse 11. He said, because I thought, surely the fear of God's not in this place. Now, I want you to recognize what just happened here. Because at this moment, Abraham elevated ungodliness above the power of God. Did you recognize that? Oh, well, I'll do it. Come on, man, this is a dark place. How many people have told you that about London or Camden or your neighborhood here? This is a dark place. Might I remind you, scripturally, darkness is not the overcomer of light, it's the absence of it. 
And I don't have some kind of delusion of grandeur, but God has called us to be the light of the world. And when someone says, oh, you're in Camden, that's a dark place, I say, it isn't anymore. God's bringing light here. And it ain't just this church. Praise the Lord. There are other believers out there that are doing the same thing. Hallelujah. And I look at that and I think, all right, let's get on this thing. But there, you know, and you go, oh, man, you don't want to go there. That's a that's the devil's territory. I go, then that's exactly where I want to go. I mean, that's like telling a doctor, you don't want to go there. Sick people are there. And it's like, well, if you're looking for a holiday, maybe, but the bottom line is if what you really have is a passion to see people well, you might want to go where there's sick people. And you're probably aware of the fact that hospitals are good for that. And nobody goes, you know, I don't want to go to a hospital because I know I'm sick because there are sick people there. But people will say that about church. I don't want to go there because, you know, sinners are there. Yeah, good. Yeah, they should be. And there's room for one more. You can come if you like. I'm no different from that. I'm a person that knows that God heals because He's still transforming me. And then He put me in pre-med. Thank the Lord for that. But I mean, So when was the last time? I want you to be honest. The last time you kind of looked at something and went, oh man, I just think the devil owns this territory right now. And I don't know, man, about getting around that. And so you think, well, how do I manipulate this situation so that I, can, I don't have to risk that much? But the Lord may be leading you into that situation to bust hell open and let everyone out. And it was the Lord who said that if He gave us the power of the gospel and the very for, therefore the keys of the kingdom and that, that the gates of hell would not prevail. You're aware of the fact that gates are not a, like, unless you're Samson, they're really not a tool for offense. It isn't like anyone went, all right, everybody, get your gates. All right, gates. That's not gates. They're there not to kind of fight someone away. They're there to hold you in. You're aware of that, right? Now, I'm not in hell. Jesus didn't look at Peter and say, the gates of hell will keep you in there. If the gates of hell will not prevail, they're not going to prevail for what reason? They're not going to prevail because that door is there because on the other side of that door are a bunch of people who are killing themselves out there because the best thing that they've been told is love is having sex with a lot of people. And they've been told that the best peace they can get is getting wasted. And they've been told that the best thing that they could possibly get in life is stuff. Some people recognize the prison they're in, and a lot of people don't. And I look and go, oh man, that's just a culture now. No one's going to probably listen to me anymore. Right? I'm just a person. I'm American. Why would they listen to me anyways? And listen, says, the gates of hell will not prevail. What, to keep, to keep, why would I want to go into hell? There's only one reason I would want to go in there to say, alright, who wants to come out with me? The thing is, people, we kind of look and go, oh, that's just shut and it's probably locked. Yeah, I think I have the key. Yeah. I'm, sh- I'm a victim. You know, that's the problem. I'm a victim. God called me to do, He called me to sit. I'm just going to be still and know He's God. He's like, yes, no, I told you, go in. And I'm like, I mean, which one of us is going, all right, who wants out? I mean, ask that sometime. Are you tired of it? And people will be like, do I trust you enough to be honest? I hate this. I hate not knowing whether I have a disease, whether or not I'm pregnant. I, don't, I hate wondering whether or not he'll still be there or whether she'll still be there. I hate wondering whether or not I'm going to cheapen myself and not want to look at myself in the mirror because I knew who I was, even though I don't even know what I did last night anymore, but I know what I was. I don't want to look at that anymore. Would you like to be free from that? I'd like to invite you out. You want out? Because when Jesus opens up a door... Nobody can shut it. Isn't that what he told us? Do you believe it? I believe it. I would never have come to this country if I didn't believe that. You want to ask how many people do I think God wants to save in London? My answer is every one of them. Jesus didn't die for some. His blood is sufficient for everyone. But he's not going to force you in. How can I force you into loving something? But I can sure invite you. And Abraham goes, so I mean, so now we get the motivation behind this situation. So he's walking with his wife and he's going, I don't think there's any fear of God in this place. So you know what that means, right, honey? Is this one of those sister trips again? One of those sister trips again, honey, sis. And you know, by the time we're done with this thing, Abimelech looks like more of a righteous guy than Abraham does. Abimelech called him Lord. 
Abimelech recognized, by the way, are you aware of the fact he said so great a sin? He knew what sin was. He knew what right and wrong was. And he said this was a really bad one. Well, after all, you're going to kill me, God, if this is the case. That must be a really bad, I mean, if you're going to kill me for it, it's got to be a bad one. And then I also think in regards to all of this, that he's like, but I was completely deceived. And did you recognize that he intercedes for his country? And it's an interesting thing. Look at this with me. Verse 3. So God came to Abimelech in a dream and said, you're a dead man. And he goes, whoa, 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 whoa. What did I do? But his response, and instead, verse 4, he says, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation? Did you see the word also? Now, what did that mean? Now, it can only mean one of two things. One is, are you going to kill my entire nation with me? And then he's going to say, but I didn't even do anything wrong. There's as much as I'm aware of. Or is he aware of Sodom? Because if he actually, and it appears to be in the language that that appears to be the case, that he kind of looks and he realizes that the God who walks with this guy is the God who just took out an entire plane of people and their kingdoms and all of the nasty, rotten things with that. And this guy, and he looks and he goes, and remember God's like, it's over, you're done. And he's like, whoa, are you, we're a righteous nation. Now, are they a righteous nation? Of course not. No nation's a righteous nation. You're probably aware of that. But he looks and goes, but we weren't that. I mean, we saw what you took down, but everybody knows about Sodom. I mean, nobody goes near Sodom. We all know bad Sodom is about that. Are you going to kill us too? I love the fact that he isn't. Notice he's not going, hey, you're not going to kill me too. He intercedes for his nation. So what you have, think about which one of these guys was more selfless. The guy that looked and said, hey, I know I'm going to have to give you up, but it's going to save my life. Or the guy that says, hey, you're not going to kill all those people, are you? That's a pretty wild thought. And to me, the most amazing thing about this is at the end of it all, God's going to have to talk to this guy who's busted another guy on this sin and say, hey, that guy's a prophet. Man, treat him well. You better restore his wife. And I think, well, that's a strange place to go with this. Or is it? And what if God didn't say that? By the way, I hope you recognize this is the first time God introduces the word prophet. That's a strange place to introduce prophet, this guy, at this moment. Abraham has a lot of really beautiful moments. I am really, really thankful for his human moments as well, might I say, in the sense of that, because that gives me a little bit of hope. I mean, one of the things that I've been wrestling with all week as I look at this text is, okay, now 24 years ago, what sins did I think would be gone by this point now that I'm still dealing with? What things do I still want to default to when things get really heavy? Because if I look at it, that's kind of the similar situation here. And I realize, wow. But God didn't pull his call off of this guy. He didn't go, you know, you blew it one too many times now, pal. We're done. But Scripture makes clear in the book of Romans that God's gifts and callings are irrevocable. See, God knows everything we're going to do wrong before he gets into the relationship. Isn't that awesome? That he still wants it anyways? See, he's not like us. Where one day we kind of wake up and we look and, and, and if we were God, if we were God, and praise God, we're not. And one day, you know, you know, we'd wake up looking at us and go... You still not changed? You did that? Well, forget it. Yes, I've had it up to here and you've gone over it. We're done. And God doesn't do that. God is constantly forgiving. And I realize by the New Testament, I get to the book of Hebrews and we're like, this guy doesn't waver in his faith. And I'm like, whoa, ho, ho, ho. I'm reading through his wavering. And I realize, but God's like, but between this and the book of Hebrews is the cross where all that stuff was cast into the depths of the sea and it's just not seen anymore. And I love that because I realize God's like, nope, I don't see it anymore. I don't know what you're talking about. Do you realize there's one area you can know more than God? That's your sin because he chooses not to know it anymore. Do you really want to fill in the gap with God on that one? God, let me remind you. God's like, why would you want to do that? But don't we? Oh, God, I'm such a miserable, rotten. Like, how about instead celebrate him for his mercy and his grace? Now, I'm not telling you that should be a license to sin more. What it should be is it should be a call to holiness because in the end of it all, we pay for these moments. We spend the rest of our life paying for moments like this. We've got a Hagar and we've got an Ishmael that they're going to have to deal with in the next chapter because of one of these moments. God's still forgiven the act, but there's still ramifications on earth to pay for those moments. I don't want those. I wouldn't want to stare you in the face because I've been some big hypocrite and all of that. And go, well, all right, God forgave me, but I know in my heart that I've still sinned against. And, and please understand, I, as a pastor, I take that very seriously. 
If I do something really just stupid and selfish, I'm sinning against you guys too because I know God's called me to represent Him to you. Now, I know that doesn't mean He's called me to be perfect, but I do want to be perfectly in pursuit. I wouldn't want you to think of me as perfect because then you wouldn't be able to relate to me anyways. I wouldn't be able to relate to me. But if, if it were that you're like, you know what? Okay, that guy's human like us, but he sure is in love with Jesus. Then guess what? We all get to watch each other grow. That includes me. How cool is that? Then we can go, wow, remember when... Wow, we could all sit back on a day like this, sipping lemonade a couple years from now if the Lord tears and go, wow, look at how far he's taken us already. Wouldn't that be great? Well, then let's learn from this. So he, so he goes, okay, wait a minute. This Abimelech, by the way, and he's one of several Abimelechs in Scripture because there's, a, there's by the way, his son, the next time we'll read the guy named Abimelech will be in chapter 26. It will be this man's son, Isaac, Ishak, who does the same thing to another guy named Abimelech from Gerar. Chances are it's Abimelech's son. And then what we'll find out is there's a Gideon's son now is also named Abimelech. And then David also stands before a Philistine king later on named Abimelech when he pretends that he's insane. We'll read that in Psalm 34. Now, what it means, it's interesting, because what the name means is Abba means daddy, and Melech means king. So it means my dad's the king or my dad the king. And I realized that there are some people, and this guy right now is really being a relatively noble guy. And yet God's going to tell you, look it, I just want you to know I've been in control of this situation. Let's wrap this around as we get near it. So here it is. Abimelech comes and he says, okay, wait a minute, are you going to slay a righteous nation also? Verse 5, didn't he say she was my sister? She said he was her brother. He was, yeah, yeah, I said that, right? And he says, so look it, and he says two things. He says, look it, in the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hand. Notice that's how he presents his righteousness is in two things. The first, again, is the word integrity. And for what it's worth, the word in its simplest sense, tum, means completeness. Integrity in its simplest sense means something that's right and correct beginning to end. It's, it's complete. The opposite of integrity, then, would be something that's got holes in it. And wouldn't that be the case? Somebody lacking integrity has got holes in areas? Ooh, you've got, really, you're lacking some integrity in this area. And what that means is you're really not complete in this area. Not complete in the sense that you're really not above boards on all of these. You're not doing it correctly. But then he uses the word innocence. And the word innocence, and I do love this word, it just simply means clean, pure. Now, I can take a bottle of water, I can take something like this, and if I filled it full of water, but if I actually had something like some form of hydrochloric acid or I had some kind of really nasty bleach product, and I just poured a little bit in there, who would want to drink it? As a matter of fact, some of you are aware of the fact that they're going coming down on one of these Russian groups right now because of the way they were trying to sell this crazy vodka they were making, which was just basically pure alcohol mixed with bleach and water. So it was killing people, as one would expect. Um, not good ski. And uh, that was for you, Hannah. Uh, we do have a resident Russian here, but she has no part in that, I want you to recognize. Um, the bottom line is, is if you're going to be innocent, how much, how much pollution does it take to make this thing not pure? That becomes the problem with us pleading our innocence. As for it to be pure by the virtue of its term, it can't have any pollutants. It can't have one trillionth, gadillionth of a percent. Because if it does, it's not pure anymore. And if God's demand is perfection, then we'll never be able to stand before him on our own merit. But from the beginning of all this, God is going to demand that it's never that the worshiper is going to be the thing that has to be right and perfect, but it has to be a sacrifice. When a person would come in the sacrificial system to go and make a sacrifice before God, the cover charge was the death of an innocent animal. That had to be perfect. It couldn't have a block or a blemish. or a, I mean, you couldn't say, this thing's about dead anyways. Let's just fry it up for God. I mean, you take your best thing. And, it's like, and people would say, no, why would you do that? Let's call the SPCA and make sure that we... The bottom line is because you didn't want to do that anyways. What would it be like if there was a sacrifice to your sin? Instead of, I'll just get away with it. And so when the, you stood before the priest to see whether or not you could come in to worship God, it wasn't like he looked at you and saw you perfect. How'd you do, to, how'd you do this week? Think any bad thoughts? See any bad things? Do any bad things? How are your hands? How's your mind? Because those are the terms that are used here on my heart. He looks and he says, how's your sacrifice? Because you can't control whether or not, well, I can say it this way. You can try to make the best decisions you can, but by the default of you being human, you're not going to be perfect. God knows that. It would be unfair for him to demand that. But you can be wise about the sacrifice you choose. 
So, let's flash forward to the day you stand before Jesus. You stand before the Father, the judge of all humanity. Do you think he's going to look at you and go, hmm, how perfect you've been, Angela? Ever think a bad thought? Remember one, remember what that pastor said, that weird word, quadrillionth or whatever of a percent. Got any in you? Or is he going to look at your sacrifice? I mean, that's what he set up, right? So what's your sacrifice? Your good works? Are your good works perfect? Are you going to be able to say, well, you know, everything I ever did was for charity and it was always with selfish motives. How much percentage of that does it have to be to be impure? Oh, that's right. It just takes any. Is that what you're going to do? Well, I belong to a church. <laughs> I hate to pop your bubble on this, but do you really think God's going to find any church on earth? Is he going to look and go, well, that was perfectly pure. You think that's going to happen? So what do you got? Well, Scripture only makes one restitution, and that's Jesus Christ. By the way, the Father can look from head to toe, from beginning to end, start to finish, and there's no part of that, there's no percentage of any percentage of any percentage that's faulty, wrong, or filthy, or sinful, or bad. So we can look at it, and it's like, so who are you going to stand with? What's your sacrifice, beloved? Because my sacrifice is Jesus, and here's the best part, the Father's going to look, and He's like, what's your sacrifice? I'm going to say, Jesus, and Jesus is going to go, hi, Dad, and He's like, that's all I'm looking for. Have you done that? Have you accepted that gift? Are you still trying to come up with something better? You really think that if a father is going to give his son to die for you, that you're going to say, yeah, sorry you sent your son to die, but I decided on something else, that the father is going to think that's cool? Do you really think he's going to look and go, oh, well, you know. Look, at I'm offering you love, and you're like, well, I want another option. What, an option where I don't love you? An option where somehow in it you earned it, so I owe you? I gave you life. I gave you that breath. I gave you the ability to do something good, and you want me to owe you? Think about that for a second. The audacity of that statement. Beloved, back in our text here, this guy looks and he goes, Hey, man, I'm totally clean. And God says, Let me just make something clear, pal, before you start standing on your own righteousness. I'm the one who stopped you. Now, does this, this directs my prayer life. Do you know what tells us that God frustrates the plans of the wicked? You know, the problem is, has God ever frustrated your plans to sin, or is it just me? And I'm thinking, ooh, am I acting like the wicked right now? Yeah, of course I am. I just don't want to think that. I'm like, all right, Lord, if you don't want me to be over there, just stop me. Look at that. You know, and... And I was like, Push, I'll run into something. I remember there was this situation where there was a friend of mine and myself, I was in a band at a time, we were going to go to this party, and we knew the party was bad news. I mean, it was just bad news all the way around it. And we just kind of knew we were going to go there, and this was way before I knew Jesus. We were probably going to do a lot of really bad things, and then do a lot of other bad things, like get in fights when we were done with the whole thing, and then walk out of there with someone else's something because they tried to beat us up. And it was just, it was bad, it was bad, it was bad, it was bad. And I just remember that, but there was one guy in the car, and he was kind of somebody that was sort of a guy of faith, if that makes any sense. I mean, I think he was probably raised by Christian parents, so they kind of instilled enough Jesus in him to make a miserable when he was trying to do bad stuff you know so he was always kind of a bummer to us because i was like you know we had no conscience and this guy's like i'm not really sure about this and it's like well you should figure it out get out of the car and and i'm telling you what it was sort of like one of those situations where he was going to drive and we drove and we got out of the driveway and the moment we got out of the driveway we got a flat tire so we pulled back in and we're like all right oh man now what are we gonna do He's like, oh, don't worry. And then one of the other friends in the car is like, oh, no worries, man. We can go to my house. We'll take my car. We'll go. We'll go there. I'm like, all right, all right. So we get in his car. And, and, and as we get in his car, we pull just a little bit back. And the moment we pull back, just something happens in his engine. just goes, boom, like that. And we don't even know what that meant. And what we did know it meant was we weren't going anywhere in the car. And so we actually pushed the car back up the driveway. Friend number three, I was the one who wasn't driving at the time, and he said, no worries, man, I'll go get my car, you guys wait right here while this car smokes. He, he goes, and he's just down a couple blocks from this friend, he goes and he gets in his car, he backs up, and I kid you not, he doesn't get more than his back tire into the street, and BAM, he gets hit by some car. I mean, the entire trunk, his boot is removed from his car. And at that point, you're like, hmm, maybe, I mean, this is what it took for me to go, maybe we really shouldn't go there. <laughs> Does that make sense to any of you other than me? It's like it took all that, and it was still a maybe. I was still going, I don't know, man. How far of a walk is it in, like, <laughs> negative degree weather? And, wow. And I'm, I had a, the, the guy that was, like, kind of almost Christian, whatever kind of guy, whatever. Of course, almost Christian is, like, almost pregnant. Or really, you're either are or you aren't. But he's kind of like, he's like, man, if we start walking, we'll probably, like, get run over or our legs will fall off or something. <laughs> 
Like, yeah, you're probably right. And the police raided the place and arrested pretty much everybody that was there. So I was pretty thankful not to make it in the end. But I think about how many times that God has to do something like that, you know, and you're kind of like, man, what in the world am I doing? And, and then all this God's like, look, I, I stopped you. You realize I stopped you. You'd have a prison record right now. Because, I mean, what you had planned by that time in the night, you, you had, this would not be pretty. And if I had that kind of prison record, I wouldn't be able to come here right now. There's no way the border agency is going to let me in here with that kind of history. So let's just hope they're not listening to this when it gets on the radio. So, but, I mean, in the end of it all, the Lord's like, look it, I want, I want to stop you from hurting yourself. And you're like, no, 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 this is fine. This is, you can't fight God and tell him it's good. How does that work? God, no, no, get out of my way. This is perfect. This is what I want. This is, this is really, this is the best thing for me. And God's like, oh, but I didn't give it to you. How does that work in your mind again? When all good things come from the Father of heavenly lights in whom there's no shadow of turning. And he says, and I give all good things to those who walk uprightly. So that only gives you one of two things. Either you're not walking uprightly or it isn't a good thing. Or both. None of those work out well for you. And if it's a good thing and you're not walking uprightly, I wouldn't give it to you because you would break it. You got that, right? And here's like, God's like, look, I stopped you. Now, here's Abraham thinking, this is an ungodly place, man. Ooh, this is going to be, we better lie. This isn't a godly place. So we, we're the only God example that we have here. We better lie. And God's like, do you really think I'm restricted to believers? Do you really think it's like I only can work with believers? You might want to read the story of Nebuchadnezzar. You might want to read the story of Jonah. You're like a righteous man. Running from God doesn't sound very righteous to me. When Peter gives his testimony about what happened with Jesus, he says, Pilate was a pawn. The religious leaders were pawns because God already knew exactly what was going to happen. Jesus picked Judas Iscariot. Does God know how to work his will with unbelievers? Can you sleep a while? I can sleep better at night realizing, man, God, you are in control. Thank you. And then I think, whoa, that's an ungodly, London's an ungodly place. Well, then let's see how God wants to change that. Do you really think God wants it to be ungodly? By the time this chapter is done, I would think this guy got a really bizarre witness and he's still trying to figure out if there's anything. He's like, well, you certainly are merciful. I'll get that out of it. I'm thinking, do you think God wants all those people in London going to hell? I, of course not. And he doesn't want you going there either. So let's wrap this around. Let's close. So it says, so, we, so what happened? This guy, by the way, contrary to Abraham, he's thinking of others. And then contrary to Lottie, the first thing in the morning, he gets up and makes a change. He goes and he goes, man, I had two dreams last night. They're not pretty. This is what they are. And the people started to freak out. So Abraham says, well, we better do something about it. So he calls in Abraham and he says, what were you thinking? Give me your sister like that. I'm sorry, I can't. I think of someone in New York when I think of stuff like, what were you thinking? Hey, huh? Come on, your sister, right? Oh, come on. No. I had a bit harder to believe that that girl was your wife, the one, the Ishmael mother, but this, I would, yeah, no, I don't know what to believe. By the next chapter, they're going to argue over some wells and they have to actually lay down some animals just to kind of close the deal because what good is Abraham's word? And he says, well, what were you thinking? He's like, well, I just kind of thought that this wasn't, there was no fear of God in this place, so I figured we're going to have to take matters into our own hands. And don't you realize that's the struggle that Abraham has that we all do. It's at the moment you feel like something is outside of God's control, you just take the matters in your own hands. I do it too. I don't know, man. I don't see how God's in control of this situation. I better. And any of you ever, did that ever turn out well for any of you? Because if so, I'd love to know how, because it never turns out well for me. The moment I'm like, mm, I'm just going to have to do this one myself. God's like, what are you thinking? Says, well, and here's the thing. Well, but she really technically is my sister. But the thing is, it isn't that that was, because the bottom line is, you probably have heard it said, a little white lie is still a full-blown lie. Or half-truth is a full-blown lie. Because what he was telling her is, she's not my wife. Remember, he goes, look, if they know you're my wife, they'll kill me. So tell them you're my sister. But what you're saying is, tell them you're not my wife. And it's, oh, I'm just so thankful the Lord doesn't do this with me. So with that, you can, you can imagine Jesus would be like, well, tell them you're not my wife to the people because if so, they'll kill me. And Jesus is the king of the Jews. He's someone that's like, look it, you know what? You are my bride. And if you are my bride, I'm going to die for you because I'd rather die for you as your husband than deny you and live.
Isn't that real love? And I realized that's the love I want. That's the love I want for you. It's certainly the love I want for my wife and children. I'd rather die for them, testifying of them, than lie to get something. Because what did he get in the end of it all? He got more stuff. But could you think any of this stuff satisfies at this moment? All of it is a trophy of his failure. Remember when God, those of you familiar with the Torah, where God gives quail to a bunch of people complaining about meat and it goes basically till it comes out of their nostrils and it says he gave them the desire of their mouth or their hearts but sent leanness to their souls. In other words, hey, there are times where God will give you what you're asking for in the end of it all. What you'll get out of it is, the, is wishing you hadn't gotten it. So then he does this weird thing where he says, okay, look at, I'm going to give you all this stuff back and here's the deal. Okay, look at, this is how innocent I'm going to get. I'm going to give you your wife back. And notice he calls her your wife here. Actually, he calls her your sister, your brother. Notice what he says. It's God who says otherwise. In verse 16, to Sarah he says, behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver and I give him a bunch of animals too. And I'm going to give, him, give you back. He is not officially married to this woman until he consummates the marriage. Now you're probably aware of what that means. And so, God's like, I kept you from consummating the marriage. You guys were never officially married. All he had to do is once. And, they would, and he could, wouldn't have to go near her again. But he would do that, and that makes him officially married. He did not do that. God kept him from doing that. But now he shames her and goes, look it, I'm going to send you back and all this stuff with that. And I'm going to give it all just back to Abraham at that point. And he says, look it, because I'm going to cover, this covers me. This, man, I'm covered. I'm, I'm, my hands are clean of this situation. It's interesting because in verse 18 it says, The Lord had closed up the wombs of the house of Abimelech, the house because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Do you realize that Sarah will be called Abraham's wife 30 times in Scripture? Do you think God really wants to make the point? He never calls, God never calls her his sister. Because he's, he's like, well, there's Hagar, take her. No, you're, you're his wife. But maybe God really wanted to do it through you, Abraham, and not through me. God's like, Sarah, you're his wife. Sarah, you're his wife. You're his wife. You're his wife. God didn't change his mind because of all these circumstances. You were always his wife. Well, that's going to be a dangerous one as we look in the world we're in right now because there are all kinds of people swapping and doing all kinds of crazy things and saying, well, she was my wife and she's not my wife. God's like, well, what do you think God thinks about it? This is, he takes this stuff seriously. Do you realize what would happen today if every time somebody was physically together with someone else, they got legally married from that point on? How many of you would be a polygamist? Because scripturally, that's the way it was. It was, man, the first time you were physically with someone, you were married. That was it. You might be a little bit more careful about that first love encounter that you kind of got somewhere between Disney and those teen films that said, I'm eight, how come I haven't kissed anyone yet? Lord, have mercy. God says, now why would God say, hey, don't give this man back his wife, his wife, by the way. And he's a prophet. Because if God didn't say that, Abimelech would have killed him. That would have been ironic. Think about it. And the ironic thing is, that's what Abraham was trying to save in the first place. But if God didn't say, hey, look, this is my man, don't go near him. If he didn't say that, now if you were Abimelech, wouldn't you kill him? You shamed me. You made me look like a fool. I took this woman to keep peace with you. I should kill you right now. I'm not going to because God already told me I was a dead man from the beginning of this. I don't want to play that game again. So let me tell you, as we go to prayer in this, let me lay out a couple things and let's pray. Number one, first of all, what are you standing before God with right now that gives you a right to him? Your deeds, your actions, the innocence of your heart, the integrity of your heart, the innocence of your hands. Is that what you're saying? My hands have never been dirty. My heart's never been wrong. Is that what you're saying? Are you that deluded? God would like to offer you a perfect sacrifice you can stand beside that is willing to publicly declare your name among the brethren. That's what the Hebrew says. Have you accepted that gift of Jesus Christ? I don't want you walking out of here unsure of the most important decision you'll ever need to make in your life if you accepted God's gift, His sacrifice. Because today, if you haven't, I'd like to give you that opportunity. If you have accepted it, welcome to the journey. The journey is not a journey where all of a sudden you took one step and said, how come I'm not perfect yet? We read stories of all kinds of people in the process. The beautiful part is, is that God is patient. But that is, no, again, no license to do something stupid 
or to try to live and bank off of that grace. It really should just be caused to celebrate the forgiveness we have if you've taken it. Now, with that in mind, I do want to pray. And maybe there is today, there's just situations you're like, I thought I'd be free from this by now. Well, let me just ask you, are you still willing to walk? Remember how God said, walk, I'll give it to you. Let me lay this before you. When God told the nation Israel that they were going to get the land, he says, I'm not going to give it all to you at one time because you would take most of it. It would become barren. You'd have nothing to do with it. It would be undeveloped. Be no, there would be no part of my glory all over that. I'm going to give it to you part by part. As you grow as a family, as you walk, I'm going to give you more land with each step. And I'd say the same thing happens with each of us. Beloved, consider this, that the Lord genuinely wants you to walk with him, and as you walk, more territory is gained. Your life is changed. More of it looks like him, and none of it is barren. So keep walking. But maybe today you're in the middle of some choice and that choice you're trying to make right now is one where you don't see God in it. So you're like, I'm just going to take matters into my own hands. When we learn from this not to do that, say, Lord, I don't see the fear of you in it, but I'm going to trust you're bigger than that. Lord, I don't get all of this, but somehow I'm going to trust you in that. Lord, I don't see how you could ever take this nation back, but I don't know how this nation was ever yours in the first place. That was an act of you, but I crave it again. Save this nation and use us to do so. I'm good with that. Would you pray with me? Lord, I am so thankful for this chapter. I mean, right before Abraham gets his boy, right before he sees this amazing gift of life, even as we held in, I held in my hands today this gift of life, he still has to reconcile what it really means to trust you in situations where he doesn't see you. Situations where people just seem so ardently against you. And I just want to pray right now for every one of us, Lord, for those places where we just don't see you in it. The workplace, uh, Lord, the, the public mass around us, our neighborhoods, whatever it is. Lord, don't let us take matters in our own hands and think somehow we need to connive and fabricate and lie and, and just scheme to get ahead when it's you, Lord, who's supposed to make this happen. And we're supposed to be walking in faith Lord, I know that the moment that I scheme, I stop walking. And then I, I, I sit where I shouldn't be trying to develop things without speaking to you about it. And so, Lord, I, instead I just want to walk. I want to walk with you. I want to be intimate with you. And in that, Lord, I just want to thank you that you are my perfect sacrifice, Jesus. That I can stand before the Father and trust you. So I pray right now for every one of us, God, me included, that I would not rely on anything but you. And in that, Lord, that you would give me the freedom to have peace even when situations look bizarre like this. I don't want to defame your name. I don't want you to have to say to someone, that guy's my pastor, and then have them go, "Uh, how? Sure, you use broken people. You use people who are still in the process. And God, I just pray that we would recognize that for every person that's been given some form of grace of profile within your name, within your kingdom, Lord, that we would respect the position, but pray for the person because our influence is often vast and we don't, I don't want to have any situation like this in my life where someone goes, how could you call yourself a pastor? But I wouldn't want that for any of us if someone could say, how do you call yourself a Christian? So, Lord, I just pray right now that you would just fill us with a desire to be right, Lord, that our lives would reflect innocent, uh, Lord, hands and, and, and minds of integrity or hearts of integrity. But it would be the result of us walking with you, not trying to get your grace as a result of it. And so right now, Lord, within this room and at the sound of this voice, if there be any or many who have not accepted this gift of Jesus Christ, and perhaps today it's the first time they really recognize this is for real. This is about a God who loves them, who isn't asking for them to perform and see whether or not they pass the X factor. This is genuinely about a God who loves them, is asking for them to say yes to to his gift. Lord, why would there ever be a reason that someone would say no to that gift right now? So God, I pray that you would kick the door down of hell and that you would start breaking the captives free. And if that's you, whether or not you are sure or you're not sure, you can walk out of here sure by saying yes to this gift. I'm going to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen. And if you agree with this prayer, I just ask at the end, 
for you to give a resounding, confident amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let those words be my words. Let that prayer be my prayer. So be it in my life. And here it is. God in heaven, I confess to you I'm a sinner. I am guilty. I'm a broken individual. You knew that before I was born that I would be this. You also knew I would be in this, this moment right now making this decision. And I can't stand upon my own merit and expect you to applaud me. I can't stand upon my great works as if somehow I did anything without your ability to do it. I can't try to win your love because I already have it. That's the ironic thing is I could fight for something you're offering me at your own expense. So, Lord, I just pray right now. Father in heaven, I pray right now that you would accept the, the gift that you're looking for from me, my surrender. I recognize that that guilt needs to be paid for and that Jesus died on the cross for that guilt. And because he died for that guilt, I, I, I accept it. He died for my sins so I want to say yes to His offer to forgive me of them, to make me innocent by His gift, not by anything I can do. So I believe He died for me. I openly confess that, and in doing so, I believe that all that I was, the person that I've been, is now buried with Christ. But as He rose again, You offer me a brand new life. As You say, whoever is in Christ is a new creation. So Father, make me a new creation one that isn't governed anymore by the way I used to be, by my own selfish lusts and desires and, and, and just selfishness as a whole. I pray right now that you would transform me. Make me someone, make me someone so radically different that I won't recognize the guy I used to be. So please, set me free from my own selfishness. Set me free from my own apathy and indifference. From my, just from the horror of my sin and be my Lord as well as my Savior, Jesus. Be the Lord of my life and the architect of my reinvention. But I pray as you've so hungered to fill me and to cover me in your love, please do so now. May I know your love. May I celebrate your love, your forgiveness, your freedom as I am completely yours as much as I know I, I can be. In Jesus' name. And if you agree, I ask you to say, Amen.